I feel like I've heard probably you and definitely other people call this the the YOLO economy. You only live once that life is too short to do jobs that make you miserable. And it's interesting to see that play out now. Exactly. I've been referring to it as YOLO on steroids. Obviously, people knew this basic mantra before, but the pandemic, the the trauma of all of this has just reinforced it for a lot of people. And that's why not only are we seeing record numbers of job openings, but this data showing us that nearly a record again in July, it was only topped in April of people quitting their jobs. So even people who have employment are really rethinking is this the place I want to be? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 9th. Today, we're talking about how the pandemic has fundamentally changed so much about work and the economy around the world and here in the U.S., One sign of that is this weird paradox that there are so many unemployed Americans right now and so many job openings. So theoretically, those unemployed people should be filling those jobs, but they're not. There are basically 80 unemployed people for every 100 jobs or 1.25 job openings for every unemployed American. That's Heather Long, economics correspondent for The Post. And she says that this mismatch is probably going to continue for a while, even after millions of people lost unemployment benefits this past weekend. Both workers and workplaces are reassessing everything right now. We're in this really weird scenario where the Delta variant recently is causing a lot of havoc for many people. It made a lot of people hesitant to travel, hesitant to go back to the office. A lot of companies have pushed back the date, including the Washington Post, when they're mandating that employees return to work. But even beyond those COVID impacts, which we know still exist, my team and I, as we dug into the details, we found a couple of things that I would flag for people. Number one is there's this fundamental mismatch. We've got a lot of job openings, but where those jobs are located and the industries that those jobs are in are not necessarily where the unemployed people are located or the industries that unemployed people used to work in before they got laid off. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. Like, where are the places where you have people who are seeking jobs, but the jobs aren't available? Or like, what are the the details of where this mismatch is showing up most acutely? It's most acute in a couple of sectors, in particular, what we know called business or white collar job sector. There's nearly double the number of job openings as people who used to work in that sector. It's pretty close to that for healthcare and education right now. That's K through 12 and childcare type education. And then we also see a lot of retail and restaurant job openings. I've done the same job for probably 30 years. One of the people that we profile is a woman named Annie, Annie Farley from Hutchinson, Kansas, and she's 63. I've run an embroidery machine. It was always, yes, I'll hire you back. Yes, you're going to come back. Yes, you're going to come back. Yes, you're going to come back. Uh, lost her job in the pandemic and 
when she tried to get it back a year later, was basically told, sorry, we hired a younger, cheaper person than you. And now it's been a real struggle at age 63 for her to try to find another job. She ended up actually taking early Social Security, basically early retirement, but she's still hoping to find something. I've, I've had to look for a job the whole time because I w- I've been on unemployment. And I mean, nobody's beating down the door to a 63-year-old, but I feel like people think I'm the problem because I won't go get a job. I mean, I, and I would go get a job if there was, you know, a good one. But I mean, it's like, what's the big deal? Just go work at McDonald's or whatever. And I don't want to. I'm 63 and I don't want to do that. And she's one of many older workers I've heard from who just feel like they're really given the shaft in today's employment market. And as we've been reporting and it's been on the podcast, a lot of people who used to work in restaurants and and retail don't want to go back. They feel like it's a real slog of a job and they want something different. And on the location side, There's a lot of job openings in the economy right now in the suburbs. I was just in suburban Maryland yesterday outside Washington, D.C. at a Wegmans grocery store, and you would not think the pandemic was still going on. The place was packed, and that's where there's a lot of hiring. And so what you see is, you know, people who used to work in the city or used to be set up to commute to a city, you know, are now seeing more job opportunities in the suburbs, and there's just not as good of transportation transportation, like metro lines and buses to get to some of these suburban jobs that are now growing and expanding. And of course, anyone who's paid any attention to the real estate sector knows real estate in the suburbs has gone bananas. So even if workers say, hey, that's where the jobs are, I want to move to that suburban Maryland neighborhood, maybe to work at that Wegmans, it's really difficult, incredibly expensive to do that right now. Hmm. I'm also curious. I mean, you said that there has been some rethinking among people who are trying to get a job or thinking about getting a job in terms of what they want and what they think is the right job for them. Can you talk more about that? Like how this period has caused this great rethinking of of employment? We've been calling it the great reassessment of work. I just hear it over and over again, and we've seen it in polling. A recent Washington Post poll last month found that nearly a third of workers under 40 want to change careers that they're in. I mean, that's just a huge amount of people rethinking their lives. And of course, so many of us either are the people rethinking or know people who are rethinking. Maybe I just hear that word flexibility. I want more flexibility over and over again. For some, that means the flexibility to work from home, at least uh, for some of the time. For others, it means a more flexible job where they can spend more time with kids and family. For others, it means more time for mental health or more time to do hobbies and activities that they want. And you can see that there's a lot of strain to hire in jobs like retail and restaurants or even manufacturing has struggled uh, quite a bit in recent months. And people are just throwing up their hands and sort of saying, I, that's not what I want anymore. I'm interested in how that's played out demographically. If you're seeing certain groups who are more represented in this population of people who are like, I don't want to be miserable in these jobs anymore, and I don't want to do them. 
across the board, we're seeing a lot of desire to do something different. But I would say from the polling that the Washington Post did, we did see a much higher percent of people who were under 40. So uh, also uh, workers of color and some you know workers who maybe tended to live in more urban areas. So, you know, it was an interesting mix. But again, this is something that I personally have heard in interviewing everybody from white collar executive level people to people who worked restaurant or retail jobs. I also think that this brings up an interesting question that I think is an important question and an honest reaction that a lot of people have, which is that if there is a need for people to fill jobs in huge numbers and people who don't have jobs right now, then why do we continue unemployment assistance or why are we continuing eviction moratoriums for people who don't have jobs right now? Like, isn't that a reason that we should look at the labor market and say, okay, we don't need to be helping unemployment because there's plenty of jobs? Well, that is what the federal government said this week. Seven million people lost unemployment benefits entirely and another three million saw their benefits essentially cut in half. So the average they would have been getting would have been around 600 a week. And that is now down to an average of around 300 a week. And there were a number of states, 22 states, that rolled back those benefits early over the summer. It's early days. What we did see with those states that acted early over the summer is a little bit surprising. Uh, We saw actually employment did not surge in those states that ended the benefits early, as you may have expected. We did see some higher incidents of people reporting you know, that they were struggling to eat and pay bills again. And the big one that I think people forget is we saw a little bit of a hit to those state economies because there wasn't as much spending. Again, if you're taking away, if somebody's going from $600 to $300 a week or obviously from $600 to zero, they are not going to spend as much on food, on shelter. They're not going to pay all their credit card bills. So I, I would just say, I think the most middle of the road way to say this is the ideal in the United States is we would not totally cut people off unemployment. You know, we would have some sort of a better state program. These programs are state based at the moment where, you know, again, if somebody got laid off in the middle of August, you know, they shouldn't be cut off completely. They should be allowed to apply for unemployment. That's interesting what you said, though, about that in places where unemployment benefits have expired or the state has gotten rid of them, that we haven't actually seen that increase in people getting hired. What do you think is going on there? There's a lot of theories. You know, some conservatives argue that it just hasn't taken enough time, and, and they may be right. People have been saving up some of that money. It gives them a bit of a cushion, and they don't feel maybe the urgency. What I would argue, again, is this theme, this YOLO or this great reassessment theme. And what I hear a lot on the ground from people is, I don't feel that I have to take the first job available to me. You know, I have this dream of trying to get a better job or switch careers. And so I was just on the phone with a woman yesterday. Um, She and her husband moved to Phoenix. They're trying to, to build up a better career after working about 10 years. They're in their early 30s. And she said, you know, I have, I did get a job offer in August, but I didn't take it because it wasn't a lot of money. It was a $15 an hour job. I want to hold on, see if I can get something better in September or October or November. Now, this could be a very different conversation a few months down the line if they can't pay their bills. 
you know, and then they feel more urgency. Hmm. So how are employers meeting those demands of people who say, look, I don't want to be doing the same work I've done for the last 10 years and I want to be at a place where I have a career path or get paid more or feel like I'm not doing work that is grueling and unlivable? employers have to change and many of them are changing. If you look at almost any job ad, even for a retail job or a restaurant, they are stressing that this isn't a dead-end job, that this is a job where we promote people who start as a cashier, as a line cook, and they end up as the store manager at Chipotle or Walmart, you know, a few years down the line. Every company is trying to do something like that, paint this image that this isn't just a job, this is a pathway for you. You can see a lot of companies, big companies coming out, talk up that they've helped people retrain. So they don't want them to be warehouse workers forever. They help them to try to get to their dream. So I think that's really interesting. Another thing that was fascinating, Martine, is um, we just had a Harvard Business School study come out that pointed out that a lot of the companies, particularly big companies, use these screening tools, these robots, and these artificial intelligence to scan all the resumes that they get on a site like Indeed or LinkedIn. And and they just get so many of these thousands in many cases, they can't read them all. And the problem is these artificial intelligence is doing a very bad job in many cases. Mm. They are leaving out millions of people, particularly anyone who has a job gap or doesn't have sort of the perfect resume, you know, that so I just keep encouraging employers, no, there's no simple fix. But at this moment in time, we do have over three million Americans who are unemployed but have been unemployed for a pretty long time, for six months or more. And those people, in many cases, are ready to get back to work and don't overlook them. Well, that's interesting in terms of long-term changes that maybe could stay with us for a long time, that those historic things that people worry about, having a gap on your resume or having a kid and taking time off and trying to get back in the job market, that it can be so hard, that maybe this could be a solution for that, that there is this forced increase of openness toward the non-traditional job candidate. That would certainly be a huge plus if it happened. We have seen a lot of wage growth, particularly in industries like retail and restaurants. Restaurants now pay on average 15 an hour for the first time. That happened just recently. Same thing with grocery stores on average now pay 15 in the United States. And a lot of places that never used to offer benefits are now offering at least some basic health care benefits, including mental health care. So I think that's a real positive. I'm starting to hear from companies, some larger companies, particularly in the retail space, that are opening their own daycare centers as they realize that, you know, there are some more employees, particularly women, we could potentially get to come work for us. I was just on the phone with somebody recently and they said they were offered not only a higher pay than they were expecting hourly wage, but when they the company came back and said, we'll pay your mileage. Some people argue the power has shifted into the hands of workers. Uh, It'll be interesting how long that lasts. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. After the break, we're looking at how the pandemic has disproportionately affected working women around the world and what this means for the future of work. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. 
Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. One of the groups of people who are struggling the most in this economy are parents, and especially moms. This phenomenon is well documented here in the U.S. Now to the economic toll of the pandemic on women. The COVID recession is the first in which more women have lost jobs than men. We've also talked about this a lot on the podcast. I was having a mental health crisis is, is what is what happened. It was horrible. It was tense. It was unrealistic. It's just such a pressure cooker. And it took and is taking just a huge toll on women emotionally and But that's not just in the U.S. Around the world, the pandemic has had this huge impact on women, on women's lives, on their careers. And it's really hard to quantify that toll. Enter post-journalists Anu Swamy and Emily Rahala. They wrangled the numbers and they did this analysis of the economic toll of the pandemic for women globally. And the numbers and trends that they found are pretty staggering. 54 million women, which is about 5% of the global female workforce, had to give up their jobs or had lost their jobs because of the lockdowns globally. We also realized that women before the coronavirus hit were overrepresented in the informal economy. So working outside of the formal labor market. So Emily and Anu had these numbers. And then with a team of journalists working around the world, they set out to meet the people behind the numbers, women who'd either lost their jobs or quit during the pandemic. One of those women is Claudia in Lima, Peru. Claudia is the mother of three teenagers. After years of hard work, she said that things were finally going well for her family. They had an apartment. Her husband owned his own taxi. And Claudia was running a convenience store. Then everything changed. The pandemic hit Peru relatively early, and it hit really hard, almost overnight, Everything was shut down, and both her business and her husband's business were hit hard. Multiple members of Claudia's family came down with COVID. They had been working to build their businesses, and now they were struggling just to survive. She started to sell her stock in her convenience store. They had to leave the home that they'd saved for. And she was pushed, like so many women in Peru, from that more formal economy to the informal economy. In Peru, there were 25% of the women who had a job at the end of the first quarter of 2020 didn't have that job when the pandemic hit and they went into lockdown sometime in mid-March. 
And since then, there has been some recovery, but it hasn't been at the same level as the pre-pandemic level. And even when these women have gone back into jobs, they are underemployed and they are doing something to make ends meet and are likely not in the same jobs that they used to have, which likely paid them more. She told us, this is a skill that women have. We can do a bunch of different things at once. We can do anything. We can sell anything. And she describes her days as very much this hustle where she's helping her son do his online schooling through a very questionable phone line. She's selling stuff in her spare time on the street to make a little bit of money. She's doing elder care. She's doing child care. And all of these women are trying to piece together enough to to even not even approximate what they had before. And a sentiment we heard a lot was, we just, we don't know how this ends. And that's very much the case for Claudia. The last decade has seen this slow crawl towards more equal representation of women in the global workforce. But the pandemic has derailed those gains. And it's not clear when and if that gap will be made up. I fear it's going to take a long time for women to get up to where they were pre-pandemic. The gap is likely going to be wider than it was before. And it's going to be lopsided in many countries for many years to come. And I don't think we have seen the end of it as yet. When we attempted to study what is the long-term implications, we still don't know that because it's still an ongoing and unraveling situation. Anu Narayan Swamy is a data journalist for The Post. You also heard from foreign affairs reporter Emily Rahala. Claudia is just one of the women that Emily and Danu featured in their story about setbacks for women in the global workforce. And seeing the data laid out paints a very powerful picture. We'll include a link to that story in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernotsky and produced by Maggie Penman and Savvy Robinson. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>